So have you ever traveled internationally for pancakes? In three weeks, the International House of Pancakes will celebrate 60 years of business. So how are they marking and building up to this big celebration? Well, they're changing their name. Some of you have seen in the news this week that the restaurant that is famously known as IHOP has changed their name to IHOB, as in International House of Burgers. This marketing move to promote their burgers has created quite the storm in the old Twitter sphere. One of my favorite tweets this week came from a guy named Tony who sent a tweet to Wendy's. So Wendy's, you just gonna let IHOB sell burgers on your block? The official Twitterer of the Wendy's Corporation deserves a huge bonus for their response. Not really afraid of the burgers from a place that decided pancakes were too hard. <laughs> they definitely deserve a raise, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, did their marketing move work? Well, last Sunday on June 10th, there were about 20 million social media posts connected to the International House of Pancakes. On the next day, on Monday, there were more than 500 million posts connected to IHOP. So it definitely had a move. The question is, will they keep the name change? Will it keep being IHOP? And maybe even more, will the name change actually move people to go buy one of their mega monster burgers instead of a stack of Rudy Tutti Fresh and Fruity Pancakes, right? I mean, is this really going to change? We don't know. Only time will tell. But one thing we did learn is that when something familiar becomes different, people react. It influences them. Paul Tripp says this, often when we become familiar with things, we begin to take them for granted. We tend to quit examining them. We quit noticing them. When we are familiar with things, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity tends to rob us of our wonder. It closes with this. And here's what's important about this. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way we live. That's a big sentence. What captures the, the wonder of your heart? Whatever it is, is controlling the way that you live. For the next few weeks, we are going to turn our attention to one of the most familiar stories in the world. It's said that Charles Dickens once called this the greatest short story ever written. And it's my hope that as we look at this familiar story, that we would take these words to heart and we would notice it, and we would examine it, and we would celebrate it, and that the story and the truth behind the story would capture the wonder of our hearts again and again and again. And that it would, because of the wonder, it would control our lives with the joy and the grace and the mercy and the power and the authority and the love of God. Listen to Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. 
Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people. In that crowd are some moral, religious, church-going folks. And there's also some folks in that crowd that are far from being moral or religious, and they never darken the door of a church. And Jesus is telling this crowd a a parable. A parable is a a real-life truth set inside of a real-life situation so that real-life people can see how to do life for real. And so Jesus is telling this parable, and, and just like we will be able to do, everybody in that crowd could understand the parable. Everybody could make a connection with this story about a father and his two sons. Now, the sons were not twins. There's an older son and there's a younger son. And the younger son one day comes to the father and he says, I want my inheritance now. I want what's coming to me now. Now, more than likely, this didn't just suddenly pop into his head. No, most likely he has been thinking about this for a while. This is something that's been swirling around in his mind. He's tired of living life with his dad. He's tired of living life with his brother. He's tired of living at his father's house. He's tired of having to work around his father's business. He's tired of the the movies and the TV shows that they watch. He's tired of their sports and their hobbies and their jokes. He's tired of their favorite restaurants. He's tired of their favorite places to shop. And he's definitely tired of their church. He wants some freedom. He wants to do his own thing. He wants to do things his way. These are the things that have been swirling around in his mind. And he finally decides he's going to do something about them. And so what does he do? Well, he goes to his father and he basically says this, you know, if you were dead, I could have my inheritance. I could could have the money that could help me have my freedom so that I can do things my way and go my own way. So is there a way we can make like you're dead so I can get my money? Happy Father's Day, right? Dishonoring your parents is is not something that was foreign in the time of Jesus. Disrespecting and rebelling against parents, it, it happened from time to time. But it wasn't widespread like we find in our American culture. And really, rebellion against parents is, is kind of praised far too often in our culture here in America. That type of cultural trend can trace its roots back to the 1950s. Historians and researchers say that generally speaking, before the 1950s, rebellion against young, by young Americans was done kind of on an individual basis. It was more personalized. It, it wasn't widespread. But then in the 1950s, there was kind of a cultural revolution that, that turned that upside down. The tables were turned and the thoughts of honoring and respecting parents started disappearing as they had been for many years. And what turned the table? Well, one word. Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, I'm kidding. It's not Elvis. <laughs> no, researchers and historians, they, they have all kinds of things that they throw out there for, for why the 1950s were, were a changing time in the American landscape. But the reality is it wasn't just the 1950s. You know, things don't just happen overnight. In the late 1800s, parents started keeping their kids in school just a little bit longer. 
And so the, the notion that somewhat happened more often than not of someone getting married at 15 or 16 or 17, that began to change because they were staying in school a little longer. Then by the 1920s, that idea had taken some deeper root. And, and what happened was something that was called the teenage phase was starting to become a part of the American way of doing life. So it wasn't just the 1950s, it was happening before the, the shift and the change. But what became the teenage phase in the 1950s moved into a phenomenon. Why? Well, again, historians and researchers give a lot of different answers. Some of them say it's just the normal cycle of society. Others say it was the, the rise in mass media, the, the rise of rock and roll music, the rise of movies, the rise of TV shows. Some say it was the effects following a massive major worldwide war. Others said it was trying to find their identity following the war. And others say it was just the, the notion of the rise of the teenager. That's right. The word teenager is, is not a word you'll find in the Bible. And you won't find it in a dictionary before the 1950s. It's been noted that in 1934, the Webster Dictionary had an entry for an adjective of teen age. But it wasn't until the 1961 edition that the word teenager began to show up. And all of a sudden, we have this whole other person. Teenager was listed as a noun in the dictionary. Before there were teenagers, there were just youths. Dr. Michael Platt, professor of philosophy and humanities, said this about youths. However confused, wayward, or silly they acted, however many mistakes they made, they looked to the future. They knew that adult life was different than a child's life. They planned to grow up, leave childhood behind, and become adults. They were aware that life is more than youth. And then he says this, the teenager has no such horizon. Beyond the teeny world, there is no adult life, no past with heroes, and no future with goals. So why this little history lesson here? Well, just to remind us that any rebellion we see in our current culture is not started just because we have smartphones now. And the rebellion we might see in the youth culture is not even connected just to the 1950s. Now, if we want to look for the, the start of rebellion amongst young people, we would have to go all the way back to the very first man and the first woman. See, the, the glory of God, his truth were not enough for them. They wanted some freedom. They wanted to do things their own way. Honoring your father and mother is one of the most natural realities of humanity. We, we have been created with an understanding that we need to honor our parents. And we've been commanded by the one true holy God to honor our parents. But just like the first man and the first woman, we, we lean toward rebellion. We, we want our freedom. We want to do things our way. And, and parents sometimes just become a barrier to us getting what we want and what we want to do. Now, are parents always perfectly worthy of being honored? No. Are some parents ungodly or even abusive or evil or wicked? Yes. So how does a, a Christian honor parents like that? Let me just give two very quick, very general principles. 
Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans and thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace and well-being and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. That is the deepest reality of the character of God. He is the first and full and final father. And it is his desire to give his grace and his mercy and his love and his peace and his well-being and his hope to you. That's how he functions. And so the first principle is to love God first and most. Always aim higher than your earthly parents when it comes to the ultimate hope and satisfaction of your soul. The second principle comes from Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgive your parents. Period. Why? Because if you're a Christian, God in Christ has forgiven you. He's rescued you from the terror of hell and the worst thing that death can do to you now is temporarily sting you. We forgive because we have been forgiven. But seeking God first and most, loving him first and most, forgiving your parents does not mean ignoring sin and harm and abuse. If you or someone you know is in the the path of true parental harm, then please find help now. The character of God is marked with grace and and mercy and peace and love and well-being and hope, but his character is also marked with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And the scripture tells us that God desires to rescue the weak, to rescue the destitute, to rescue the afflicted, to rescue the needy, to rescue the fatherless. This is who he is. It's his character. And so if that's the character of God, then it should also be the character of his church. The whole church, not just the pastor, not just the church staff, but the whole church should be full of people available to pastor and minister and care and help children who are in need. It should be our character, just as it is the character of our God. The younger son, though, he wasn't in the path of harm. No, he was, he was creating the harm. He was trying to harm his father. He was trying to harm his brother with his selfishness and his desire for greed and freedom. He was refusing to honor his father. He's refusing to honor his family. He was refusing to honor his responsibilities and he was refusing to honor God. He basically announced that he wished his father was dead. And who did he make this announcement to? His father. And so how does his father respond? Listen to the next part of verse 12. So he divided his wealth between them. Jesus doesn't give us the the details of how he divided this. You know, who got the family house? Don't know. Who got the family business? Who got the family jewels? 
Who got the Roy Orbison albums? We don't know. You know, there's just, there's no details here. Jesus doesn't give us details about how he divided it up because those things are not the main point of the story. But just to kind of help our minds kind of step into this story a little bit, let's just kind of come up with an illustration here. Let's, let's imagine that the father had about 3,000 acres. According to ancient custom and law, the, the older son would get two-thirds and the younger son would get one-third. So if my math is right, that's a really, really big if. I think that means that the older son would get 2,000 acres and the younger son would get 1,000 acres. At least that seems how the math goes. Now, at this point in the story, the moral, religious, church-going folks, they are flipping their lids. They're thinking, what? He gave him his portion? What's that father thinking? Man, man, he should have shown him some tough love. Should have put that boy over his knee. Man, he should have kicked him out of the house. He should have disowned him. He should have written him out of the will. Now, why would the moral church-going folks say that? Well, they'd say that because they were always keeping the rules, at least in their mind. They were never on the nightly news for the wrong reason. Nah, when you looked at their life, they worked hard. They provided for their family. They were volunteers in the community. They tithed to the church. They were responsible citizens that were not the black sheep of the family. So they were thinking quickly, wait a minute. This younger son, he should have been punished. Man, he dishonored his father. He offended his father. It's possible, according to the laws, he was doing something illegal even by giving him the money. So this younger son, he should have been punished, and, and yet the father honors his demand, gives him his portion? No, they, that did not sit right with them. David Guzik writes this, The father knew that the son made a foolish and greedy request, yet allowed him to go his course nonetheless. Why? Why would he do that? Well, we'll see the answer to that kind of played out as we continue in the story, even this morning. But maybe just a, a quick, sobering word of advice for all of us. Just like this gracious, kind, loving Father, God might allow you to take that arrogant, reckless, stubborn, prodigal path that you're trying so hard to take. He might let you. And as we'll see in this story, wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> so what does the younger son do with his money? Verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. If we use our land illustration, he took his 1,000 acres and he sold it off. This was probably family land for generations and generations. And, man, he just took the money from the highest bidder. Or maybe he didn't even wait for the highest bidder, just whoever would give him some money for the land. And he took all of that cash and he went to a distant land, a distant country, and he squandered all of it. He wasted all of his money on, on fast cars and strong drink and loose women. 
He used all of this money on, on betting and gambling and buying fancy gadgets. He used all this money at expensive concerts and, and sporting events. He had it all. He got his freedom. He got to do things the way he wanted to do them. He got his own way, and he blew it all. He blew it all. There's no way for us to make any accurate calculations of value between then and now. It, just, it can't be done, but, but just for fun, just, just so we can kind of get something in our mind. Let's just use our 1,000-acre picture. And, and I found some information on what three-fifths of an acre might cost in, in ancient Rome and found the value of, of what the silver coins that they would use might be valued of today. And, and if we put all that together, it comes up to about like $1.5 million dollars. He got all that in a short time, and in a short time, it was all gone. Now, why do I use that somewhat useless number? Just as a way to help us see that the younger son dishonored his father, and he took a great deal of money and wasted it on a great deal of immoral activities a great many miles away. He didn't just make a few mistakes. No, everything we see about him, he was sinful. He was wicked. He was completely reckless, wasteful. He was unrestrained, and he was irresponsible. In other words, he looked like the kind of person that was too far gone. The kind of person that had made so many mistakes, had so much sin, had done so much wrong, that he was too far away from any help and any hope. Know anybody like that? That feels like they're too far gone, there's, there's no help and there's no hope. Do you feel like that? Is that what's swirling in your heart and your mind? What happens to him next? Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. This is the moment my mom would say, when it rains, it pours, right? Man, just, just everything. He, not long ago, he left his house a rich man. And now, not long later, he finds himself a homeless man in a distant land, and now everybody around him is desperate. They're in need. They're destitute. So what does he do? Look at verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. It's an interesting tagline to the story. Rich Jewish kid traveling abroad, squanders all his money, takes a job feeding pigs. That would be much shame to his family. Now someone might say, well, at least he got a job, but, but you know, not really. Listen to verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. He got a job feeding pigs, but it didn't pay him, I guess, anything because he couldn't go buy any food and his boss wouldn't even let him have some of the slop that he was feeding the pigs. Reckless, wasteful, unrestrained, irresponsible, homeless, penniless, famished, and probably emaciated. 
This is him. Now remember in this crowd, there's some non-church-going folks, okay? There's some greedy loan sharks. There's some greedy tax collectors. There's some prostitutes and other sinners in this crowd. They were the lowest of the low in the community. And they're in this crowd listening to Jesus tell a story, and they're in a story about a guy that amazingly seems lower than them. So they're listening. Their ears are are perked up. This younger son is most often called the prodigal. Prodigal means to be extravagantly wasteful, extravagantly reckless, extravagantly irresponsible, extravagantly unrestrained. And now the prodigal, formerly known as rich, is with the pigs. Bruce Hurt says this, when the pigs eat better than the prodigal, the need of the prodigal is great. (laughs) It's true, right? Listen, if you don't know Christ, if you're not a true believer and follower of Jesus, your need is great. You might be thinking like the church-going folks in the crowd. Hey, I'm good, I'm moral, I'm I'm responsible, so, so everything's fine. But If you don't know Christ, then your moral, responsible life is dirtier and filthier than the slop of the pigs, and you're dead in your sin. This is how Jesus consistently spoke of our need for him. Or maybe you're thinking like the non-church-going people in the crowd, and you're thinking that your massive, immoral life is so deep and so long and so bad that that there's no help and there's no hope for you. We're going to look at this in more detail in the weeks to come, but, but just in case you don't know, the rest of the story is that the prodigal, the one who was lower than low, the one who had experienced massive immorality, he went home. And his father, the one who he stood in front of his face and said, I wish you were dead. That father ran. He ran to welcome his son home. If you are moral and responsible and lost, there's great news for you. If you are immoral and reckless and lost, there is great news for you. And that great news goes like this. On another day, Jesus said this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You are never too far gone in your morality to repent and come to Jesus. And you are never too far gone in your immorality to repent and come to Jesus. This is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's why it's called good news. Now, fathers and grandfathers, I'm about to share a few things that are going to be difficult for us to hear but they are eternally important 
for us to hear. Jeff Thomas says this, somewhere in the prodigal's upbringing, it had been implanted indelibly in his consciousness that whenever things went wrong and however badly they went wrong, he could always go back home. And he says this, and he must always come back. In other words, there's no hope anywhere else. He goes on. He hadn't been taught, if you disgrace this family, then never come back. He hadn't been conditioned to the view, if you let us down, then don't bother to come back. If you bring shame on our name, then stay away. No, he said he'd been told and he saw this truth lived out in the practice of his father. However low you go and however deep the abyss or appalling the degradation, you must always feel that this is your home and here you can return. How are we doing on that, dads? How are we doing on that? And Jeff Thomas says this, I don't care who you are, what you've been, where you spent last night, it doesn't matter. If you come to him in repentance for your sin, then you will in no wise be cast out. There is that hope, that glimmer for every man and every woman and every boy and every girl. Fathers and grandfathers, do you have that hope? Do you have that glimmer of hope? If you don't, then you can have it today. Repent and come to Jesus. Come to your senses and come to Jesus. But fathers and grandfathers, if you do have that hope, then do everything you can to give that hope to your kids and your grandkids. Why? Because the hope that is found in Jesus Christ is the greatest hope in the universe. It's the greatest treasure in the universe. Why? Because Jesus will certainly never cast you out. When you are a child of God, when you've been saved, when you've been redeemed, when the Father has run to welcome you home, you cannot be cast out. That is the hope of someone who follows Jesus Christ. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a legend. It is not a religion. It is not a denomination. It is the great and glorious and grand news of the gospel that Jesus says, I will not cast you out. Let us find hope in that promise that cannot change. Let us find our hope in Jesus Christ.